And I am Aware Now. Aware Now, the official platform for causes. Tune in and turn it up as we raise awareness one story at a time for the causes that tie us all together. Dionye Noel is a Navajo Black life coach, film producer, climate activist, and BIPOC wellness advocate. As a woman who hails from the Navajo Nation, Dionye has dedicated herself to being a vessel for ancestral healing and its forgotten wisdom. She aims to make wellness practices more accessible to BIPOC women while helping to empower them to be catalysts for cultural change by stepping into their inner strength. You were playing a flute carved by a Diné relative. This was my introduction to you in a post on Instagram where you spoke about magic. In regard to remembering the future, you share this. We have the ability to speak the language and sing the songs of the Great Mother. It simply takes remembering. Instantly inspired. I would love to know the story of the magic that is you and would love to uh, start the conversation off with perhaps about your heritage. Let's start there. Yeah, thank you so, so much for this time and the space. Um, so let's see, I'll start with, I am was born and raised on the Navajo Reservation. I will just introduce myself in Dinek, Eche, and uh, we usually start with our clans by our, our great, or our grandmother's clans. So my father's two grandmothers and my mother's two grandmothers, and um, we say, Yat a, which is hello. Yat a she dione nuol anishe, hachi ni nishle na hitli bashishi belagana dashiche na hitli dashanele. And uh, my clans are na hitli, which is uh, African American or Black, and hachi on my mom's side. And um, yeah, I'm. I was raised on the reservation. I lived there till I was about like eight or nine. In between there, and my parents had split up, so I spent a lot of my the rest of my time in northern california living with my dad and then spending my summers christmas holidays back at my mom's and just kind of going in between and um it was a very interesting experience not realizing that not many children have exposure to the indigenous reservations of the continental u.s uh you know i grew up going to powwows and seeing the medicine man regularly uh watering corn in the cornfield oh sheep herding since i was like since i'm old enough to walk <laughs> sheep herding with my great grandmother um helping her card wool and pick plants to dye the wool and watching her uh you know spend hours at her loom where she would just listen to ktnn which was the navajo radio station she's listening to powwow songs and stories and everything's in navajo and at the time you know as it's going between this Western society in California, and then going back to the res, it felt like just this really, really difficult transition because as a teenager, you're thinking of all the things that you don't get to be a part of in the city, right? You're like, I'm stuck here during the summer. We have um, no internet. I think we got satellite TV when I was like in middle school. There's no cell phone coverage. Um, 
And it was difficult to enjoy my time back home. You know, I really just thought I was missing out on so many things that teenage friends of mine were getting to experience like AOL. And um, I know like MySpace started to become popular, but those are things that I didn't get to have during the summer because I was back on the res. And at that time, you don't appreciate um, how beautiful it is to have that communion with mother nature. And it just feels like something that is a burden because you're being cut off from so much, not realizing it was actually a blessing to have that silence. And, um, you know, through the years I had gone to college in Northern California, then went to ASU. And my mother always had these conversations with me of like, you should really come back. And why don't you work on the res? You can work in public health. And there were so many times where I was like, I'm seeing the um, disparities on the res and I know it's so difficult for me to, or it would be so difficult for me to get a job. You know, it's like unemployment is about 40%. It's even worse now since COVID. And I really understood that at the time as I was going through college in Northern California and then finished at ASU. And then the pandemic hit, you know, after years of me being kind of in the tech space and marketing and realizing I actually wanted to be more in an, an artistic world or artistic um, role just with my life and my career path and had been encouraged to go into business and quit my job January 2020 to go into filmmaking <laughs> and then the pandemic hit um, and that's when I started working on a documentary um, just about food insecurity on the res because I had moved back home during the pandemic you know, the world was shut down. I realized my family back home really needed me because my mom had a nervous breakdown. And I just started to see these glaring um, issues on the res and the injustice that I was experiencing day in and day out. Uh, you know, it was pretty much impossible for me to find work there. I ended up doing some remote consulting for friends startups and I had to drive 20 minutes from my house to get on Zoom and tether from my phone signal that would drop every five minutes. Yeah. And then that's when I realized like, oh my gosh, my sisters after the pandemic started when schools were shut down, they were forced to do their homework in the parking lot of McDonald's because that's where they had Wi-Fi. And, you know, as a person who was like very much conscious about what I was eating prior to moving back home, I realized there is no organic food in our local grocery store. The cost of this, the groceries is um, much higher than I expected. And then the food available is all processed. So there were a lot of things at the time I was like, I was pretty hardcore vegan, all plant-based, couldn't find things like quinoa, tofu in the stores. Um, and then I started thinking, it is insane to me that all of these people are here um, fighting to get in line for these like five or six um, fast food restaurants. And the grocery store is stocked with things that are not that healthy either, you know? So it's like the lesser of two evils. And then if you think about families that don't have that much time on their hands after work, they've got a lot of kids to feed. They don't want to spend time cooking. They're going to the fast food restaurants that are like, plaguing the reservation right now. Um, so I just started to see so many things that I didn't realize as a kid. You know, my mom was a single mother of uh, six and you just start realizing as an adult, all the things that she had to overcome to not just live or survive, but like help us preserve the culture mm -hmm. um, because she allowed us to have access to it and really 
uh, encouraged us to go to powwows, continue going to ceremonies, go to the medicine man, help our grandmother as much as possible, be out in the yard, helping her with the sheep every time I went home for summer. Like that's pretty much what you knew you were doing for the summer was just being out in the yard outside. And then it was just so funny to think of what my friends in California were doing. You know? They're like, <laughs> right. going to summer camp and yeah, so. Wow, wow. Yeah, and so just what different polar different worlds those were. Um, one you, two very different worlds. Um, you know, and, you know, so being a future ancestor, the way you speak about the past, the present, and the future, specifically in one of your posts when you say, I'm holding the in-between. I'd love to hear your words on that, your heart on that. Um, yeah, holding the in-between came to me while I was thinking about um, how surreal it is to see this lineage that I'm carrying within me and knowing that everything I do in this present moment is affecting generations for ages. You know, I think I had talked about in that post as well, just setting the standard for future joy, you know, and so many of my ancestors, I get to thank them for the connection I have to Mother Earth and the land and what it's like to be in communion with all of our relations. However, there was so much oppression that they had to overcome that that, you know, the epigenetic trauma there is still present within me. And so holding it in between is like acknowledging that I have to really hold space for the joy of the future and the pain of the past and say, it's up to me to create new traditions, to create new patterns within my DNA to give myself the space to mourn the loss of what they didn't have in addition to celebrating the joy of what I get to step into. So um, that's what I feel like holding the in-between is. And it's also kind of in this like um, ethereal sense where it's like, I am a spiritual person and I have seen so many incredible things just in being with mother nature and really tapping into this innate desire I've always had to be outside and in the elements and in spaces far away from the city um, and having the privilege of being able to go back home to acres of land that my great grandmother gave to us that yes. doesn't belong to anyone else. You know, we don't have neighbors when we step outside. And as a kid, um, you know, I really hated that. And now I'm like in between as part of like embracing uh, the younger part of me who didn't know enough at the time or didn't know what a gift it was to have that in my um, accessible to me while also celebrating the joy that I have now and how excited I am to continue that lineage of like being in communion with mother nature um, and from the spiritual aspect it's like I said something along the lines of the divine witnessing itself you know yeah. That it really, really um, resonated with me. And I, I don't know if I'd heard it or just felt that as I was making that content that, whoa, I am fully embodying the divine while also seeing what the divine gets to do in me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was so profound, um, as is so much of, of what you share with the world. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so this past summer, another post of yours um you shared a reminder a reminder 
in a post of yours that you are, in fact, not a strong Black woman. That resonated with so many, including myself. Why did you feel that this reminder needed to be shared? Why was this so important? Ah, yeah, I love that post. Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, Yeah, I have gone about much of my life um, really trying to be the person who has had it all together of like, oh, don't worry, I don't need help or I've got it and really pushing vulnerability away because it's almost like uh, BIPOC women, especially Black and Indigenous women have this, um, it's not a burden, but it is kind of this burden thrust upon them from a young age that like, you're supposed to be strong, resilient, your ancestors, your parents, your grandparents did so much to get you here that you don't have the luxury of being vulnerable, the luxury of giving up or taking a break or um, having rest even, or, uh, you know, taking breaks from not working hard. You know, it's almost as if working hard is the default and being strong is the default. And it gets so tiring when you wake up and you're supposed to be in that strong mode or that that uh, character of strength. Like, what if I just want to be soft? What if I just want to be vulnerable? What if I do need help? And the reminder I posted was to tell people that women in your life who are black, they are not strong. Like they don't want to be. They want to just be vulnerable and soft and they want to be okay with their needs. And that for me really resonated when I heard the audio and something I was like, oh, this is exactly what I'm feeling so many days where I'm just like, reach out to the strong, strong black woman, reach out to the black woman in your life, reach out to the indigenous women, people, women of color who are systemically marginalized, have additional barriers to overcome within our system, not just, you know, the patriarchy, but like uh, racism and, uh, you know, capitalism that also enforces those underpinnings. It's really important for us to just remember that strength doesn't have to be the default. Right. And I love that. I love that. Um, I'm so thankful that you did post that. It made me pause. It made me think. And it made me just remember the fact that I don't have to be strong all the time. So for sharing what you did, thank you. Um, you know, so de- let's talk about another word. So we just talked about strength. Let's talk about decolonization. Let's have this conversation specifically. I'd love to dive into your thoughts regarding colonization, regarding wellness, and then let's include reproductive sovereignty. Let's let's go there. Let's just start. You know, let's do something really light. You know. <laughs> Like, I don't think we have enough time. No, um, really light. Yeah, wow. Okay, so decolonization, reproductive sovereignty, decolonization in the wellness space. Um, so something that has really stood out for me is, and my actually, let me backtrack to my wellness journey. It really started during the pandemic, like for, as it did for many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had gone to yoga classes and you know, didn't really get in touch with this part of myself that um, was really in touch with or had this connection to mother nature and all of my relationships. It was very much like, 
oh yeah, I already know what that's about because I grew up with it. It's, you know, it's the powwows, it's the singing, it's going to the medicine man. Like I had really chalked it up to performative of like, these are things that you do and not what you are. And embodying those practices is very different. And I had no idea what that meant, um, at least consciously, right? I had experienced it, but I didn't really look at it and question what it meant so I could describe it and help other people to understand it. Because you can know something very well, but you only really know it if you can help someone else understand it, you know? And um, that for me started happening during the pandemic where I was like, whoa, all of these things that have been innate in myself are starting to express themselves. And I don't know what that means or how to translate this to other people, but I'm seeing a discrepancy in like, how these spaces are being set up and what's actually happening in them. You know, where it's like the way that they're being advertised is this spiritual, like reconnecting, rematriation, um, divine feminine, get in touch with your soul's mission type of um, language. And then when I was stepping into these spaces, they seemed um, commodified, a little bit token-like and uh, appropriative and also harmful in the ways that they were imposing or co-opting capitalism and neo-colonialism. And I say neo because it's like a lot of indigenous communities right now around the world are actively still under colonial oppression. It's just not direct, right? It's not like this militia is going in and imposing their will on the people Instead, they are extracting resources and then forcing these indigenous people to then have to sell a lot of the things that they have to get access to other things that they need to survive. So that's like this political rant. But in the wellness side, I noticed that there's a lot of um, mostly white spaces in the wellness world. You know, beyond your typical yoga class, it's like breathwork classes, um, you know, you see cacao ceremonies, ayahuasca, all of these health and wellness spaces that are supposed to be conscious and beneficial for the collective, but you start to see they're, they have no one in the global majority present. And I say global majority is, you know, people of color. Mm-hmm. And they're also cost prohibitive to people of color. Um, oftentimes there are people who are not of color leading out these ceremonies and these wellness spaces. So it's like none of the individuals who originated these practices are actively teaching them. They're not getting the money from them. These indigenous communities are being ravaged and you know certain people are going to these spaces, picking up all the tools and tricks and buying up all of the um, commodities and then going and reselling them for a higher price. You know, cacao is one of those products that's being resold in the U.S. all over for a premium or at a premium. Um, thinking of other products, hape, you know, a ton of indigenous practices and even ceremonial practices are being colonized. And that to me is hurtful because it it means that our ancestors who passed on this knowledge are seeing that their descendants now don't have access to the practices that they grew up with. They're now seeing that the way you're supposed to have access to them is by paywall or through paywalls, which is just the antithesis of all the things that I grew up with on the res, where it's like, when you see the medicine man, you know that everyone in the community is taking care of him. He doesn't need or he should not want for anything or be starving because his community is taking care of him and it's not like 
you, he shows up to your house and you give him $500 or like in order to have this blessing or be saved from this ailment, you need to save up enough money to see the medicine man, you know, and that's yeah. kind of what's happening right now in the wellness spaces. It's being uh, really co-opted by capitalism. And that's just a result of colonization. And it's turning it on its head because traditionally indigenous people, we have always had these practices in our day-to-day -day life. So it's not like it's separate from your your job or the community role that you have. You know, you're always in communion with that ceremonial space. So in order for us to decolonize it, we have to realize like, let's take away the paywall, let's stop appropriating, let's invite more BIPOC people into these spaces and actually create more equity. Um, nobody or very few BIPOC people I know are able to afford a $500 weekend retreat um, or even a day long retreat. That's how, how expensive some of these are. Right. So when I talk about decolonizing, it's like giving access. Um, also land acknowledgements need to be a part of that. I think a lot of people don't understand the land that they're resting on or conducting these ceremonies on is sacred indigenous land that is no longer in the possession of the original um, caretakers of that land. So it's, yeah, there's so many facets to decolonizing that I'm like, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a lengthy conversation that I'd love to potentially write about, you know, creating a longer piece because it's very intricate as well. You know, there's like the capitalist component to it and then there's like not really understanding what indigenous lifeways are aside from capitalism and then creating the equity within those spaces you know like how do we return this back to the original caretakers and where's the reciprocity element since you know a lot of these lands are lost forever but can we start to return some of the benefits back to these people who are alive today um, and then the reproductive part, I think was really interesting to experience this year because, you know, as a woman, as a woman of color, as someone who grew up in a, in a community or having a sense for what it's like to know that reproductive care is supported at the community level, uh, was really profound because you're seeing what's happening in Western culture and you're realizing this is not the way our ancestors intended this, you know, reproductive sovereignty has always been a way of life. And um, I got a lot of flack for this because I had posted a piece earlier this year called Abortion is Sacred. And I wrote about uh, a story that my great grandmother had told me about indigenous ways of uh, conducting abortion and how it was honored in a ceremonial way. It was always up to the woman. This was not something that was imposed by the community. And uh, ultimately, it was her choice, regardless of, you know, anyone else's opinion. This was always supported in the community and reproductive care was supported in the community. And it's interesting because it's actually still done to this day for Navajo girls. Um, and when I was younger, I decided not to have this type of care because I was embarrassed. And what happens to, to this day is as a girl reaches uh, puberty and steps into womanhood, she'll go through a ceremony that's four days long with her family and her entire community girls will still get their homework sent home from them for the week. So they're excused from class and they go through, um, they'll have a kinalga ceremony. And that's 
a really, really sacred time that is uh, revered by so many in the community. And it's like a rite of passage. It gives you this way of understanding womanhood. And yeah. I got to experience that ceremony this year, or actually during the pandemic when I was back home with a family member. So that post is just to remind people that our ancestors were uh, able to support one another and they really encouraged us to allow women to have that bodily autonomy mm -hmm. and and for anyone who's not yet read that post i highly recommend it i've read it a couple of times it was really powerful and um again i think we in life we get so used to looking through our own lens and looking at life the way we've been taught that this is the way it is and this is why it is um actually it's usually just what it is we usually don't hear about the why of it mm -hmm. um you know but uh but so this to your point decolonization it's a very big topic it's a very important topic um so thank you for sharing the the part that you have um but again it is just the tip of the iceberg there's so much to be said so you know let's uh so another word sovereign Sovereign is a documentary and a project designed to highlight the injustices of food insecurity on the Navajo Nation, as well as spread awareness, needed awareness for the need for a healthy food source in a community that currently, I was shocked, has to drive an hour to get food at the nearest grocery store. The food insecurity on the Navajo Nation is an issue that's been unseen and unheard by most. Please share about this film project and the reality of, of this very real injustice that it's about. We'd just love to hear about this project. Yeah, um, so it started when I moved back to the res during the pandemic, I'm gonna say the middle of 20, yeah, middle of 2020. And it started with my own experience of, you know, being a pretty hardcore vegan at the time, plant-based and noticed as I was going to local groceries or the one local grocery store that um, there was no organic produce available. So there's no organic produce in many grocery stores on the res. Um, and the food that is available is highly processed. So the definition of a desert is a place that is inaccessible or a place where food access um, is very difficult to get to and the food that is available is highly processed. So it either takes families a really long time to drive to places to get food and they have to spend money, gas. Um, many times families don't have working cars to get to the store. And then if they do have access to anything, it's poisonous. So right. I realized this was happening as I was back home. And I, I said, how am I going to keep up my diet? You know, I'm, I'm going to starve. <laughs> um, the other thing was, I noticed what was readily available was fast food. Um, Taco Bell, McDonald's, Burger King, uh, KFC, all of these restaurants, there's like a huge cluster of them by my house. And at the end of the workday, they have lines around the block, like 20 cars in each fast food restaurant's drive through line. Um, so that was incredibly horrifying to see. And I'm thinking like, what are people eating? How is anyone able to survive like this? You know, when you're thinking of like 
depression, alcoholism, you know, drug addiction, so many other things that stem from not only systemic injustice, but then, um, I mean, systemic injustice is one of the many facets that we're experiencing, but a branch of that goes into food insecurity. And right. so you think of the things that people are dealing with and you're like, oh, no wonder people are feeling sick. No wonder we have such high rates of diabetes. I think it's something like one in three um, Navajos between 25 and 35 has diabetes type two, which is like, yeah, I mean, I think it's 35%. Um, so that's a huge percentage. I wanna say it's 10 times the national average. So I just started digging and doing some statistics or reading some st statistics. And I actually have family members who've died from cancer, diabetes, um, you know, all types of ailments. And as I started researching, I wanted to just talk to people in my community. I said, what are you eating? What's your typical week look like? Um, you know, I interviewed my uncle. He's got four kids at home. My youngest cousin at the time, she was 19. She had just had, um, uh, surgery to get gallstones removed. And I'm like, that's something that doesn't happen to someone until they're like 60. Right. You know, how is a 19 year old getting this surgery, this procedure? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I started researching and then realized the history behind it is really because of what was given to so many, uh, natives at the time. So the documentary is, um, really a deep dive into a community that's 40 minutes away from mine and they have to drive about an hour to pass through my neighborhood and then get to the store that's a little bit closer to me. And what they have access to right now is a 7-Eleven. So, wow. you know, that's like Slurpees, um, Twinkies, chips, and there are four schools in that neighborhood. <laughs> um, it just really blew my mind that nothing's being done. and. In the film, I want to focus on not just the problem, but the solution. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out like, okay, subsistence farming, regenerative agriculture, what farms are actually in this area that we can source produce from and maybe have like a wellness or a farmer's market weekend to um, give people access in that neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm excited to follow this project. And again, thank you. Thank you for doing this work and sharing these stories. These are the stories that people need to be aware of um you know so let's uh I, i've thrown a lot of words out there asked a lot of questions of you uh, for a final question we'll we'll go this way for those who feel disconnected from their ancestors seeking roots seeking to feel grounded to something to someone what advice do you have what is the first step to try and reconnect? Yeah, um, that's something I've been challenging, or that's a question I've been challenging myself to attempt to answer as someone who has had the privilege of being connected to my culture on my mom's side. And on my dad's side, that hasn't been the case. So as a Black American, you know, I did a 23andMe test and was able to trace my dad's roots back to Ghana. So he's half, um, in the line is half Ghanaian. And then his father was Creole from Louisiana. So there's a ton of rich cultural heritage there that I am not connected to at all. Um, and it's really started with me doing like a 23andMe, uh, you know, rabbit hole adventure of like, it's all connected here. Can I reach out to these people? I'm probably going to just 
go to Louisiana because my great grandmother, she moved west during the Great Migration when she was 19 and moved to California or moved to LA. So she spoke Creole when she was very young and I got the privilege of learning some of her recipes, you know, gumbo and chicken cacciatore. Mm. So I'm really blessed to have those bits and pieces of my culture there. But when it comes to like the black and Creole side of my family, I really have been struggling to reconnect because I'm like, I grew up with my Nana on my dad's side. So, you know, the black culture from her um, perspective is there where it was like, we had our, our black Thanksgivings, but I still don't know much beyond that, right? It's like, what about her grandmother, her great grandmother, where, when did we actually come to the US? And was that um, a traumatic experience? Because I just, we don't know all of the context for a lot of Africans that were brought to America. Mm -hmm. um, there were also indigenous Africans or indigenous black people in the continental US that we also need to be mindful of. And I have a friend who is indigenous to Louisiana and he's Creole. So there are like actual indigenous Creole people who were from that land and had lived there for hundreds of years before first contact. Right. Um, wow. So I think that process for me looks like starting with, yeah, the 23andMe thing, which this doesn't have to be everyone's route, but it like gives you a sense for what's there, what's underneath, you know, because mm -hmm. you can feel it in your bones and having that kind of affirmation is so grounding um, and it provides a great starting point. I've also noticed like being in communities where I feel the strong resonance or the strong connection has been so powerful where I'm like, still need to sit at the feet of elders. I still need to be in spaces with medicine men and women. And I still need to learn what it means to be an ancestor later in my life. And that means first being at the feet of ancestors now, of elders in this space um, and this timeline. So that's been really important is like being around elders and reconnecting in the physical space and then saying, what would it look like if I took a trip back to Louisiana or even Ghana um, at some point in the future and said, I have this last name, who can I trace this back to? Um, and connecting with Ghanaian friends has actually been really powerful because I have a lot of African friends in um, LA mm -hmm. and just being in proximity to that culture, asking if I can sit in at like family gatherings where they're cooking traditional foods has been really powerful. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so, yeah, I love the point that you make just to have like that physical connection, right, with your past that way. Um, and and also, like you're saying, like you did you did the research, you did the work, you did the 23andMe. And so like really, and what, a, what an exciting, what an exciting journey, right? To say, let me explore me, not to be afraid of it, not to be frustrated by it, not to be stressed by it. But what, what is this about? It's like going on this, you know, like sort of expedition within yourself. And um, mm -hmm. I think that's that's something that we should be excited about, not afraid of what we don't know or not have this angst or anxiety about what we don't yet know, but but rather just this excitement to explore that, to see yeah. that, you know? Um, so, mm -hmm. well, thank you for sharing your journey, for sharing your incredible words. And uh, thank you for helping all of us become a bit more aware now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this time and this space and like amplifying these stories. Appreciate you.
tune into our podcast, subscribe to our magazine, find us and join us online. Visit IamAwareNow.com. We will no longer wait for permission to change the world. Together, we are aware now.